Hello and welcome to Kingsnake.com Web Radio. Tonight our guest is Dave Barker. Dave is a well-known photographer and writer about herpetology and herpeticulture. He and his wife, Tracy Barker, own and operate a uh, reptile breeding facility in Texas called Vita Preciosa International, or VPI. Dave's here tonight to talk about a brand new book that he's got. And Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book that you just released? Tracy and I just uh, uh, released a book called Ball Pythons, The History, Natural History, Care, and Breeding. And it's ostensibly, of course, it's about ball pythons, the title, but it's also a very good, thorough, comprehensive, general text on herpetoculture, on snake care. It really, uh, we tried to write it so that it was, you know, it has specific stuff about ball pythons, but it also has an awful lot of just general information about keeping snakes. Uh, Ten years ago, ball pythons were really kind of the the snake that no self-respecting herpetoculturist would consider owning or, or want to be known for owning. What uh, what have we seen in the past 10 years that's changed that? It's, an, you know, it's like it's a, one of the most amazing stories. You're absolutely right. It's a, kind of the snake everybody started out with. And that's one of the reasons why it's so popular today. It, you know, people, uh, it's an inexpensive snake. A normal ball python remains an inexpensive snake. They're one of the most easy, easily obtained snakes. And almost everybody starts out, you know, as their first, like, tropical snake or their first python is a, is a ball python. And for that reason, almost every snake keeper has a lot of experience with ball pythons. They know they can do well with ball pythons. They, they had a successful experience with ball pythons. And so when it came to there were expensive morphs, there were ball pythons that you could spend money on, well, unlike would have, what would have been the case with most other python species, a lot of people entered it with a lot of confidence. They they knew they could do well. It was the very commonness of ball pythons that really has served them well. Uh, a lot of people out there are familiar with the, the vast color hybridization that we've seen with corn snakes, and there doesn't seem to be an end to the different color schemes and morphology that, that we've got going on with all the crossbreeding and interbreeding that we're seeing the, the breeders doing. Uh, could the same be said about ball pythons as well? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it may just be nearly an incident sort of a progression. Uh, they're, for one thing... There's so little known about it. I mean, there are so many people that think that we now have a pretty good grip on what's going on. And I have to say that I did, uh, for a couple chapters in this book, I did a very thorough, thorough literature re- research, uh, and uh, and I found that really there's so little known about the inheritance of snake mutations and what genes are actually responsible for what appearances or what phenotypes. Uh, what we're beginning to see now at, the, at kind of a new level we've entered in the last couple of years, I think, are there are a lot of hidden genes in the uh, in snakes that are influencing the appearances. And we think we're breeding for one simple mutation, but we're seeing all this variation that's very difficult to explain with, like, simple Mendelian uh, uh, predictions. And I think what, you know, we, it's well known in many forms of livestock and, and also in rodents where there's been a lot of, uh, been a lot of research done that, you know, cattle have, I think it's 23 different loci for melanin production, not just one. 
and uh, I think probably something similar actually goes on in snakes. So, and as and wild mutations keep coming in out of Africa, they're now being serendipitously hatched in captivity because so many ball pythons are bred in captivity. I think we're going to see a lot more wild mutations, uh, single recessive or codominant mutations that are new show up, and then the combination starts. You know, you know, there's an albino piebald or an albino ghost or an albino clown or an albino, you know, and then there's triple combinations and quadruple combinations, and goodness knows what in the future we may start seeing. But in a very short period of time, I think ball pythons have begun to uh, challenge corn snakes anyway as, you know, kind of the, 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 the most successful, uh, well, I don't know what you'd call it, <laughs> the, 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 mo- the most successful candy cane snake or a rainbow snake. There's just a, so many things out there. Mm-hmm. I think ball pythons have w- more wild mutations known at this time than there are in corn snakes. It's that there's more uh, pigments on the palate when the designer morphs start being created and they start mixing pigments. You know, there's 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 a greater potential for more morphs than there are probably in any other snake right now. Who are some of the the people that you worked with to put the book together? Um, well, Tracy and I, you know, we. We, we turned to as many experts and as many people as we possibly could to help us and we were uh, we had a lot of we had a lot of people who uh, who who helped us in different ways we we asked some of our academic friends to proofread parts of it to make sure that they were correct uh, I know um, I had a, a, a fish and wildlife official look at the what I had written on uh, uh, importation and exportation of pythons in general and of all pythons. Uh, we had a, we had we used as proofreaders a number of the major ball pythons to read sections of it, uh, and then uh, all, you know almost everybody that that we made requests to gave us freely gave us the use of images of their snakes. Now I couldn't use all the images because I was looking for a particular. Um, Type of pose, a general type of pose. I mean, we're we really wanted to show the entire snake, and and we have in the book very few of the kind of uh, close-in cropped pictures where you're just looking at the head of the snake, or you're just looking sort of back in the corner of the cage, and you see part of the coil of the snake and its face. Um, we use a few pictures like that, but in our gallery, where most of the actual snake pictures are. We tried to show the whole snake so people could get a real feel for what the mutation, uh, the appearance of the mutation is. Mm-hmm. Now, you were supposed to be at the, the I guess, now infamous ball python symposium <laughs> in uh, Daytona, but I know you didn't make it. You had, you had some issues that came up. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that I asked there that Kara made me ask, and... and uh, um, she still owes me for it, by the way. Um, who's the best ball python breeder in the world? Everybody else answered the question, and they all did it very politically. I mean, I mean, it was very correct. Every everybody was happy, I think, with the answers. And you know, I mean, it's a. Um, um, oh gosh, I wish I had a chance to think about this in advance, and I could think of some. Uh, 
you know, important. Uh, that that uh, first guy, that first guy had the biggest problem coming up with the answer. Everybody else got two or three minutes to come up with theirs. Right. I mean, there are some very successful ball python breeders, but uh, um, you know, I I uh, I I don't know. Probably the most political answer for me is to say my wife Tracy is probably the greatest <laughs> ball python breeder in the world. And that that, ladies and gentlemen, is the answer of a married man. <laughs> I, I will say that I have great respect for the staff of the Houston Zoo, who in about, I think, 1966 or 1967, bred the first ball pythons. Um, I believe they were the first breeders of ball pythons in the United States, and maybe uh, ever. Um, I know all through the 80s, I, I was under the un understanding or the impression that it was it was just impossible to breed ball pythons in captivity. And uh, there was a buddy of mine in South Austin that was trying to do it, and we thought he was all nuts. <laughs> we, you know, we, we um, uh, at the Dallas Zoo, we, you know, we had a trio of ball pythons on exhibit, a male and two females. And from 1976 to 1984, we bred uh, numerous clutches of black-headed pythons, ring pythons, Timor pythons, water pythons, um, um, and other, you know, children's pythons, spotted pythons, and Angolan pythons, and we were completely unable to breed the trio of all pythons we had on exhibit. And, and the thing is, the, uh, kind of the moral to the story, I mean, the picture that's developed is that Wild-caught female pythons of all types, um, the female pythons that are collected in the wild as adults and then brought into captivity, rarely breed in captivity. And that's pretty much true for all pythons. Well, not pretty much. It is true for all pythons. And it's, uh, I think, generally true for all snakes, that big wild-caught females just don't make good breeders. Big wild-caught males make fine breeders in most cases, but if you want a good breeding female of any species of python, get the youngest one you can and raise it in the same cage so that it's really, you know, situated in its cage and, and uh, makes it feel like it's home, it's territory, and... Um, and and then that's your best chance of breeding any kind of python. Uh, that's really the thing. I mean, you know, people, uh, you know, when I started uh, keeping snakes back in the late 60s and, and uh, all through the 70s, I mean, we weren't idiots. We didn't breed very many snakes. It's not because we were idiots. It, they, we just didn't know what I just related. They, We were all working with giant snakes. We thought it was a shortcut, if, you know, if you could buy animals from an animal dealer, you, he, they, they didn't have very many baby snakes to begin with, and it would, your choice was a big snake or a little snake. And almost all of us always picked the big snakes, thinking that we were saving two or three years or four or five years of work raising them up to adulthood. Why not start out with an adult? Right. And zoos and, and private pre people, they we didn't breed a lot of stuff as, until the mid-70s and all the way into the mid-80s because we didn't have babies to work with. There are things like blood pythons where babies are just almost never found in the wild. And, uh, uh, you know, if you look back at uh, the, the, you know, there were some of the rare snakes that are bred. I mean, the, the first ring pythons to breed were 
young snakes when they were brought into captivity. The first Boland's pythons, all the Boland's pythons that have ever laid eggs in captivity were raised in captivity, and a couple of them were hatched in captivity. Um, the you know the first Macleus pythons that I know of that ever bred were uh, were youngsters that were raised in captivity. Um, you can look at Savu pythons in 1994, 1995. Uh, 200 Savu pythons were exported from Indonesia, mostly to the United States. About five or six of those were babies. The rest of them were great big black adults with silver eyes. And uh, so far as I know, not one of those big adults ever bred. But the babies grew up and bred. And that's pretty much how it turns out. The same thing was true for Aryan giant carpets when they were first brought in. Only about one-tenth of the number brought in were babies. The big ones all came in, and I don't know of any big wildcats. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who's listening to the radio right now going, well, I got a big female, and I bred it, and so that happened. But that was not... Most of the big females died in captivity without ever breeding. And uh, most of the babies raised up and bred before they were 18 months to to uh, 30 months old. Uh, it's just the difference in, in raising females is a big issue with pythons. If you want to breed pythons, raise your raise your own females. That's your very best chance to breed any kind of python. Well, besides the, the ball pythons, which you guys are obviously breeding a lot of, uh, what else are you working with down there right now? Uh, we we really have been working intensively with uh, with blood pythons and um, and Borneo short tail uh, Borneo short tail pythons and Sumatran short tail pythons, uh, probably to a lesser degree, but we still have some groups of those. But we have a lot of blood pythons. We like blood pythons. We we um, we think they're like the perfect big snake for most keepers and you know blood pythons have uh, PR problems that a lot of other pythons don't have and it's because a lot of guys my age or a little younger your age um, we all you know blood pythons weren't that expensive and at some point in our early careers we had the chance to buy a blood python and we bought one and it it, it probably for, in most cases people report that it bit the hell out of them and then it crapped all over everywhere and uh, and it did it every time then that they tried to pick it up and it never tamed down and they didn't eat very well and they just didn't do very good now I'm talking back in 1970, late 1970s early 1980s all of those blood pythons came out of either uh, Penang a dealer in Penang or they came out of Bangkok and they all were Malaysian blood pythons they were blood pythons from Malaysia and you know, we have a few Malaysian blood pythons to this day, and we breed them, and they're just not nice. They're not anything at all like the Sumatran blood pythons that dominate the market today. Starting in 1988, 1989, you know, Malaysia and Thailand both closed down in the mid-1980s, and there were no blood pythons available until late, 90, late 88 when Indonesia opened up, and a few blood pythons trickled out, and then a few more in 89, and then 90, uh, quite a supply of blood pythons um, started up and that continues to this day Sumatra blood pythons are nice and I'm yeah there's some biters out there and the big wild cots are um, uh, not nice when they come in but unlike Malaysians which in my experience came in nasty and stayed nasty for 20 years 
even the big wild cots that we have, after three or four months of careful handling and being nice to them, you know, they tame right down and they uh, they they suddenly become tame snakes. And the babies that we breed, for the most part, um, every now and then there'll be one snappy little little guy in a clutch, or, or and there, we have one clutch of uh, blood pythons we we uh, breed called cherry bombs, and young cherry bombs, hatchling cherry bombs, are snappy. Most of them, though, come out of the egg, and they're as nice as ball pythons, and they stay as nice. And we've got blood pythons that make ball pythons look like serial murderers. I mean, they're totally tame. I mean, they're like kids pick them up and play with them tame. They're just wonderful, nice snakes. They're very different than the blood pythons that made the reputation for the species. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people are catching on to that. We've got a lot of interest in, in uh, blood pythons. And, and uh, you know, they're a great snake. They're bigger than a ball python. They're more personable than a ball python. Uh, just in terms of interacting with you and watching you when you're working them or when you're working in a room with them, and uh, and they're but they're not as big as a boa constrictor. I mean, mm-hmm. they're rarely over five and a half feet long, and um, uh, most of our big older breeding females are only four and a half feet long and weigh about ten pounds. But they're such a big heavy snake, you pull them out of their cage and people go, "Wow, look at that! That thing is massive." Well, you know, it's got a big head and it's got a big body, but it's four and a half feet long. It's not really massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing like an eight-foot boa constrictor and certainly nothing at all like a retic or even a little retic or a Burmese or or anything like that. Uh, blood pythons are a nice big snake. They're big, they're heavy, they're pretty. You know, we've got blood pythons that, that make, like, Cinnalon milk snakes and Honduran milk snakes look brown. I mean, there are blood pythons that are red, and uh, uh, and there are now mutations of blood pythons. We've got one uh, uh, we call a paraleucistic. It's it, it may be a true leucistic. It's certainly it's ninety nine percent leucistic. And then there's the ivories, which are something different. So we've got uh, we've got several kinds of stripes that are definitely inheritable. We've got a patternless condition that's inheritable. We have a snake called the golden eye, which is just a fabulous snake. That uh, beautiful, weird-looking uh, blood python. Uh, you know, so they're, you know, they've got bright colors. They've got a variety of colors, and everyone is different, like ball pythons. I mean, there's just tremendous, just normally patterned ones. They've got a lot of variation, and that's the, those are all the Combinations to make a very interesting captive snake. What's um, what impact has the the skin trade had on the blood pythons? Well, it's shut down right now. Um, Europe closed. Uh, Europe, uh, um, the, or the what's the EU shut down the importation of blood python skins from mm-hmm. out of Indonesia. There are still some harvested, and I understand the only markets in the is in Hong Kong and in Asia. Uh, and so there is still some market for blood python skins, but it's dramatically less than it was just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember some of the numbers that traffic was was showing, and and uh, they were, uh, you know, seventy, eighty, ninety thousand skins. That's right. Yeah, yeah, sixty, seventy thousand. I saw. I I know, and and maybe more easily. Well, I saw actual official figures of be, between sixty and seventy, and then. 
and the officials saying, well, these are the official numbers, but really we think it's two or three times this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to realize that blood pythons are in their own way sort of like ball pythons. They they seem to have really benefited from habitat, human habitat alterations. Mm-hmm. Um, they they uh, you know the humans went in, cut down tremendous amount of the lowland rainforest in in Sumatra and replanted it with the uh, palm nut plantations and oil palm plantations and uh, uh, and they and those are wonderful places for rats they got rid of all the predators um, palm like uh, uh, what do I want to say the the farming the farming techniques they go through and they cut the lower fronds off and they make piles in between the, the uh, palms of these rows of mm-hmm basically palm fronds, dried palm fronds that the snakes hide under. And um, that, you know, the, the blood pythons have expanded their range, they're, they're, uh, uh, and they're, they're doing really, really well. So, uh, you know, the people who are skin hunters who have hunted them for 20 and 30 and 40 years say that there's way more blood pythons than there used to be because... Either they were hard to find in the forest, or they were just not nearly as dense populations. Mm-hmm. And ball pythons, they probably there literally are probably more of them. They don't. I mean, these these uh, pythons do really well when you get rid of all their predators and then plant crops that rodents like to eat. Well, there were certainly more ball pythons in uh, in uh, Daytona. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's as many ball pythons there as in Ghana. Yeah, that's uh, it's a uh, it's an amazing thing. I mean, people are so they're so funny. They're worried about the ball python market crashing, and the ball I don't think the ball python market is ever going to crash. There's mm-hmm. unlike any other python, you've got the circumstance there where you've got uh, you know fifty to eighty in some years, a hundred thousand ball pythons, mostly babies imported, mm-hmm. and you've got all those new owners every year. You know, they are they remain a very easily obtained, very inexpensive beginner snake that, you know, it's like when people, they start off with a cheap goldfish and then, you know, after a couple of years, you know, some of them have a few cheap goldfish and they get out of the aquarium hobby. Some of them keep a few cheap goldfish and then they buy expensive discus or, you know, you know with lake cichlids or they get, in, they get on into the hobby and spend some money for more exotic and more expensive animals because they had a really good uh, uh, initial experience. Ball pythons are so hardy, and they're, mm-hmm. they do so well in captivity, and they're so docile and pleasant and and pretty that, uh, you know, and, and there's so many mutations. I mean, people are howling about uh, uh, how terrible things are, and it's, you know, the, 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 the morphs, as they they start out expensive and then they steadily decline in price and and that's just the normal progression of things. You know, people are saying that this is like the Burmese craze where it burned out. You know, in ninety in eighty nine they were you know like gold and in ninety everyone that had them and bred them you know did really really well and in ninety one it was still a seller's market. Ninety two ninety three the prices came down but it was considering your your snakes were laying. 40 and 50 eggs and you were getting $400 a piece for them before they were even hatched. It was an amazing time. And then in 94 to 95, suddenly, it just stopped. And 
what a lot of people don't realize is it didn't stop because people got tired of Burmese. Um, it stopped because most of the major breeders in the United States lost their Burmese to a disease and just got out of it. They just they they uh, they suffered such severe losses, heartbreaking losses in most cases, because most of us really loved our Burmese. They had names. They're so big. I mean, it's like having a you know, it's not like having an aquarium fish. It's like having a mastiff. And they had names, and they were well known, and they were tame, and um, they were, you know, we they were fun. And then we watched them get this uh, terrible respiratory illness that was kind of, and still remains a mystery illness called the Burmese disease. And that just put the kibosh on the whole thing. People, it just very quickly wound down. What it wasn't because we ran out of mutations, and it wasn't because people got tired of Burmese and it wasn't because the, this thing came to any natural end. Ball pythons right now are it's just a totally different situation. It's not the Burmese craze at all. For one thing, a snake that takes, you know, two or three square feet, there's room for a lot more cages in the United States than there is a snake that weighs 100 pounds and takes a cage that has, you know, 12 or 20 square feet. Um, I just liked hating, hating, cleaning the cage with a shovel. That that just was the kill, the killer for me. I, you know, and I'm I'm old enough where I got tired of just like getting a hernia every time that I had to move some of these animals, or nearly getting a hernia every time I had to move some of the animals, and 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 I was worried. I mean, big snakes, you know, they do make mistakes, and they do occasionally grab you and try to squeeze you to death for a little while. It's just a short time usually, and no one, you know. Everyone parts and no one gets hurt. But you know, I, I was—I uh, just thought, you know what? I don't have to do this anymore. There are other, you know, equally nice, even prettier snakes like blood pythons or like ball pythons that are that are suitable pets for everybody. Mm-hmm. Burmese are wonderful pets. Retics are wonderful pets for certain people. But you know, I, I often get emails from these young guys, and they're like, "Oh, I'm going to get a retic for a pet." And, who you know? What do you recommend I get, or who do you recommend I get it from, or whatever? And I said, you know what? You're 16, and about the time you go off to college, you're going to have a snake that eats goats. If you ever killed a goat, it's not fun. You know, it's like where are you going to find goats in your college town? I mean, you know, or even if you how are you them, how are you going to get your pepper? mom to kill a goat when you go on when you go away to school? That's right. Okay, so it's not goats. So instead of six rabbits, I mean, you know, you're going to you're going to come come driving, you know, into your, with your roommates and whatever, with your six rabbits every week to feed your 120 or 140 pound retic. It's not. You got to think about it. They get big. They live for a long time, and they uh, uh, they're just not for everybody. They're they're um, um, just too big. It's like Great Danes aren't for everybody, and neither are Bengal tigers. I mean, it's reticulated pythons are off. They're one of the most fabulous creatures on the face of the earth, but that didn't mean that most people ought to have them. Uh, they're 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 not, you know. In my opinion, I uh, don't don't think that they're that good of a choice for most people, considering, um, the, you know, the size and the, and also the level of experience that. Uh, well, there's just so many more options now for for python ownership than there were ten or fifteen years ago as well. Oh, right. so. And I haven't said anything about boas. I really, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of boas. It's funny. I tell people, I said, you know what? When 
when I was when I first got really interested in uh, snakes, I mean, you look at you know, looking at my own life, I started off with uh, ball pythons, sand boas, uh, a couple of blood pythons, a lot of king snakes, and then. And, you know, I got very interested in very expensive king snakes and I amassed a huge king snake collection. Then I amassed a rare rattlesnake collection. Then I, uh, then, then for several years I kept a number of, uh, venomous, uh, Central American, you know, bothrops and bothriecus and that group of snakes and, uh, and some Asian types. Gaboon vipers, venomous stuff, and then I got into a very, you know, expensive python collection and extensive, diverse python collection when Tracy and I married. Loved all of those things, and now, you know, I'm in my 50s and I've come back around, and, and you know what? I really like king snakes. I really like gray band king snakes. I really like ball pythons. I really like sand boas. I like, I like snakes that, you know, they make good pets. You're not worried about, oh, is this snake going to bite me? Or is this snake going to escape? Or is this snake going to, you know, I've got to feed it rabbits or pigs or something. Or I've got to, I just want something that it's easy to start feeding when it hatches. It's, it starts feeding on some rodent that I can get, you know, easily. And and all of its life, it, you know, lives on uh, a, a diet of animals that I can that I can find easily. And I can buy frozen or thawed or pre-killed and... Uh, and, and just you know, and and that there's a lot of variation in whether I'm breeding my gray bands or or uh, my Mexicana kings or or ball pythons or blood pythons. Um, uh, you know, I just that's just it's a it's a much more enjoyable and and I think um, those you know you come back to it and it's like corn snakes and Cinnalon milk snakes and California king snakes and ball pythons, boa constrictors, those are really good pets. They're good, They're and, you know, they've been bred so many years, and there's so many color variations, and there's so many um, uh, cages that are built for them, so much equipment that's available, so many good books that are available on those things. They really have, they're, if they're not domesticated animals, they're getting close. I mean, there are snake lineages now that have been in captivity for 10 and 20 generations of line breeding, and they, they're they just, you know, I don't know, at what point do they, um, you know, if you look at a ball python, well, a ball, let's say a ball python is like the gray wolf, and then albino ball pythons are the poodles, and clown ball pythons are the, you know, you start, it's like, the different kinds of dogs right. out of the wolf lineage. You've got things now that are being line bred for their appearance, and uh, and I, I, if that's not a domestic animal, I don't know what is a domestic. Are we going to take our albino ball pythons out and let them go? I don't think so. Um, or any of these other morphs and mutations. Uh, uh, they're they're captive animals and.
a domestic animal. And people still argue about things like discus. Is a discus a domestic animal? I mean, are, gold, are goldfish domestic? Yes. Are Oscars domestic? Well, you know, maybe. Uh, are discus? Well, maybe. Um, and it's, uh, I think with corn snakes, are they domestic animals? Yes. Are, are ball pythons? Yes. Are some of these others? Well, maybe. And then there are others that are, you know, not yet domesticated at all. They're, they're, uh, they've been bred very little in captivity, very few generations, and there's no self-sustaining viable captive population of them. What kind of impact do you think that Steve Irwin had on the reptile industry? As on the reptile hobby, the reptile industry, reptile keeping in general? Wow, what an interesting question that you should ask that. I, 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 um, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I, I had a chance to talk to Steve Irwin on the phone several times and uh, uh, know uh, quite a few people, actually, in Australia who, who know Steve and count him as friend. Um, and I watched him quite a bit on TV. I had great respect for his uh, ability with snakes. Um, but I, I just had a problem with some of the... I never doubted his sincerity, but it's like the you know the rattlesnake roundup guys here in Texas are also genuinely sincere. They love snakes. They don't hate snakes. They like snakes, and they really think that they're educating people when they stand up in front of a crowd and hold a venomous snake in their hands and say, "This snake really doesn't want to bite people," and you know, but it's not biting, you know, but it's a wild animal and it will bite you if you do something wrong. And I'm an expert and I'm holding it, and, but you're not an expert and you should never try this at home. Well, you know, when kids see that, that's a mixed message and it's not a good one for the snakes. Uh, it doesn't, I don't think it grants the snakes quite the respect that they deserve. And it, um, anyway. I, I don't know. I think Steve genuinely did good things, and I think he did them all over Australia, and and uh, his saving crocodiles and also generating money uh, for good conservation projects. And I think his zoo, you know, I think he took a great deal of his uh, personal fortune, uh, maybe all of it, uh, a great deal of it, and, and invested it back in his zoo, and he changed the Australia uh, Zoo that his family is, that has uh, operated for decades. I haven't seen it in its new uh, form, but I understand it's beautiful and it's wonderful and that it's just, uh, uh, they've done a, a great thing. And, and I think all of those things are extremely admirable. I mean, Steve did what you have to do to get on TV. You know, it's just like if the, 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 the uh, uh, and and then he made a lot of money on TV, and I think he spent that money on good things. And I think all the while he was doing what he did, uh, he was trying to talk a good message about nature and about habitats and about the importance of animals in their habitats and conservation. And But uh, uh, I think it's a shame that TV requires people to do that. I think that... Uh, uh, but... But that's reality. I don't know. Any, <laughs> it, it is. It is. 
Well, Dave, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and talking with us tonight about your book and about ball pythons and lots of other things. Uh, I know we're going to be looking forward to seeing you at some upcoming shows here in the future. What, what's going to be the next show or the next event that you guys are going to be at? Our plans right now are to go to Chicago. Okay, for the NARBC. We're going to try to make Anaheim, but our kids' school schedules kept us from doing that. But we're, um, we've got plane tickets. We're going to be in Chicago unless something comes up. We... Uh, um, you know the uh, you know we were going to be at Daytona. I'm sorry I couldn't be at that ball python symposium, and I, I was just sick at heart when I um, uh, when I when I missed that. I I really had that funny punchline that I wanted to deliver in person about sometimes I wish I had terminal ons. Mm-hmm. But it, um, um, but I did you know I had kind of I had uh, I I had what I thought was a heart scare. Um, I just, you know, but I, but I've had a whole bunch of tests since then, and they said that it was uh, just an episode of, uh, uh, and not with any negative consequences. I've just had a whole slew of tests done on myself, and and uh, and I seem to be in very good cardio health, as it turns out. So. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're not sick. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, they said it was, and my problems were probably too much caffeine and too much anxiety. And, and it was, it was a, there was a lot going on in our getting our book finally delivered to the United States and all of that. And I was really looking forward to it. And I was really looking forward to Daytona. And I think I just got a little overexcited. So. Okay. Well, Dave, I guess we'll see you all in Chicago. And for everybody out there that's listening, kingsnake.com will be in uh, Anaheim. Uh, next week, we'll be handing out a thousand of our Club Kingsnake T-shirts, and we'll also be in Chicago at the NARBC in Chicago, uh, out in Tinley Park, and we'll hand out a thousand of our T-shirts there. I want to thank Dave Barker for being our special guest tonight, and I want to thank everybody for listening to, to Kingsnake.com and Club Kingsnake. Uh, thank you very much. Have a good evening. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs>